Hello, everyone. Former Haitian Prime Minister Laurent Lamont and uh, Rotary's professional head John Hugo and 10 other luminary change agents from around the world join me today to talk about uh, the eradication of poverty and homelessness. Watch every minute of this hour and a half discussion. Welcome to Your Mark on the World, bringing you another change maker with champion of social good, Devin D. Thorpe. Well, I want to welcome all of you to this uh, amazing group. Uh, you know, uh, let me go through the list and just introduce everyone who's a part of this discussion today. Let's start with Alicia Wallace. She's the president of All Across Africa. Alicia, say hi if you can. Hello. Okay, and then next with us is Ann Kerr Reichert. Uh, joining us from Berlin. She's the founder of the Ready School of Digital Integration. Uh, she works with uh, refugees there in Germany. It's a Say pleasure hi. to be here. Thanks, Anne. And then uh, Arlene Saman is the uh, founder and CEO of One Heart Worldwide, working on uh, maternal and child health care in uh, Nepal and other places. Thank you for putting this together, Devin. Honor to have you. Uh, Eitan Stibbe is an, uh, in, an impact investor and founder of C, uh, and CEO of Vital Capital. Eitan, it's a it's a joy to have you on the call today. Thank you, David. And then uh, we also have with us James Mayfield, uh, who is the founder and uh, uh, of Choice Humanitarian, and Thank also you. working in Nepal. Jim, welcome. Thank you, David. Happy to be here. And then we also have with us John Hugo, the General Secretary of uh, Rotary International. John, it's a joy to have you with us. Devin, good to be back with you. Thank you. Uh, Judith Walker is the CEO and founder of African Clean Energy. And uh, Judith, didn't we decide that you're the youngest member of the group? <laughs> we did decide, although I think I jumped in on the conversation a little late. Thanks for having me here. We're thrilled to have you. Uh, and uh, Katie Myler, uh, CEO and founder of More Than Me and was recognized as uh, one of the 2014 Time uh, People of the Year. Uh, so she's a remarkable woman. Welcome, Katie. Thank you for having me. And then uh, Laurent Lamont is the uh, uh, is the uh, uh, is an impact investor and the former prime minister of of Haiti. Laurent, welcome. It's, it's great to have you back. You're muted, but we're thrilled to have you and appreciate you joining us for the for this important discussion. Mark Horvath. Uh, is with us today. Mark is a remarkable guy, the host uh, and producer of Invisible People. It's a, a YouTube show that's attracted 2 billion views, he told us last night. Did I get that right, Mark? Is it 2 billion? No, it's uh, our total reach in the last five years has been 2 billion people, not including things like, you know, the TV and speaking events. And everything. Yeah. So that's, that's pretty good. 2 billion is pretty good run. So, so we average about 4 million views a month, and being the topic is homelessness, it's quite a miracle. Yeah, we're, we're thrilled to have you, Mark. Thanks. And Morgan Simon, Morgan, we're thrilled to have you here today. Thanks for joining us for uh, this important discussion. Absolutely. Uh, is the founder and chair of Chant Transform Finance and uh, uh, a real passion for uh, a more egalitarian world. So we're, we're thrilled to have you, Morgan. Thank you so much, Devin. Uh, 
Uh, well, let me start, uh, Alicia, by asking you uh, a question. Uh, Alicia, how does the uh, competitive nature of business empower social entrepreneurs to do good? And does the pressure that sometimes, uh, that pressure sometimes push social impact into a secondary objective behind profits? Yeah, great question, Devin. Um, yeah, I, I definitely see um, competition as um, creating an urgency for solving uh, poverty and homelessness. Um, you know, in order to compete in the business world and compete against others who are solely driven by a profit, there's an urgency um, both on delivery, providing a great service, um, and for us it's turned into our impact and our reach. Um, how fast can we scale and grow this model to meet um, the needs of the business world, uh, specifically a retail um, market globally. Um, but us internally, um, there's systems and procedures that we have to make um, in order to determine that we're not jeopardizing our wages or impact um, in a site for profit. Um, and a lot of that also comes into who we partner with. So the people who are willing to pay the prices, are they fair prices? Um, in a reasonable timeline, um, and then also investors and people that we get involved in our company. Um, what kind of return are they looking for, and are they the right people that are understanding that it's um, attacking poverty first and business second? Business is the solution to it, but the first and primary reason is to solve poverty. Yeah, that's great. And I want to go to you in Berlin. Um, you've been doing some uh, remarkable work there with refugees, uh, how do you see uh, social enterprises drive innovation to reduce extreme poverty and homelessness? I think what we could see in Germany last year in 2016 was that um, we had uh, almost 800,000 refugees that arrived in Germany and it was much too much for the government to handle. Um, and therefore there was a, a number of people from civil society that, that really stepped up um, and trying with, with new innovative processes to, to come up with solutions of how we could improve the lives of refugees once they had arrived in, in Germany. So the social entrepreneur should definitely be seen as an addition to um, what the government is doing. And in the long term, I would love that there would be more collaboration between the government learning from the social entrepreneurs and entrepreneurs getting more um, capital from the government to continue growing and, and scaling their solutions. I think that's an interesting topic. We'll talk more about that. In fact, let me, let me just jump to uh, uh, Laurent. Laurent, uh, are you, you – know, one of the questions I wanted to ask you is about the, the role that uh, the government can and should play in supporting social entrepreneurs. What's your take on, on Anne's point there, that government should help social entrepreneurs? Well – um, you know, having been, you know, the Prime Minister of Haiti, you know, I, I experienced that firsthand because um, the leadership of of the social entrepreneurship, the, the the direction, I would say, of where is the greatest need to act, uh, and 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 basically giving the you know broad guidelines as to as to uh, the priorities. Of, of investing and in social entrepreneurship and in acting, you know, should fall into a greater plan so that the impact can be sustainable. Um, so 
the role of the government is very important. Sometimes, though, it's non-existent. And in the case of Haiti, that was that was the case. And then you have to be you have to get creative because when everything is destroyed, so, you know, for example, that in the case of Haiti, everything was destroyed. We have to start from scratch. Um, nevertheless, I think you know the government has an important role to play to give you know um, you know sort of a GPS of what's needed, um, where should it be done, so that your funding also can be can stay sustainable and you can show results and that result can go along with a sustainable path which is you know getting into a government um, program so that whatever you start can continue if you if you're in for example the schools if you're in energy if you're in you know the different sectors you wanted to 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 go into a government program so that it can stay sustainable on the long run and Fantastic. not out. Fantastic. Ar Arlene, um, you credit social entrepreneurs with the determination never to give up, with thinking outside the box, and a willingness to empower others to solve their own problems. How have these characteristics been helpful to you in reducing infant mortality? Well, I, I honestly, there's um, the philosophy that I go by that you know, you go to the people, you respect them, you love them, and empower them to um, solve their own issues. Most times they actually know what to do, but they don't have the resources available and access to those resources. And so with our model of the network of safety, it's really very grassroots. We go into the communities. We empower not only the women in the communities, but their husbands and their grandfathers and the entire community become stakeholders and the outcome of really taking care of the women, the future mothers, and, and um, wanting to make sure that their babies are safe and have a safe, clean environment for a delivery. So it has worked really incredibly well. Jim, I want to jump to you as to, to follow up on that just a little bit. One of the points you've made is that the uh, that women are really central to uh, poverty eradication. Why, why, why is that the case? Well, from, from my experience, uh, when, you, when you're talking about poverty alleviation, you're talking about families working together to find solutions for their own individual problems. And in a country like Nepal, for example, many, many families are without husbands, without, without the, the, the male member. A lot of them leave the country, leaving their wives behind, and, and women are, in a are essentially responsible to, um, to, to maintain their families. And, and we played a very important role in Nepal in making sure that all of the programs that we are involved with uh, we, we train, for example, in Nepal, we, we've been training about 800 leaders in the villages of Nepal. Half of them are women. And I've been absolutely amazed at how easily women are able to take on leadership responsibilities in the development of their individual communities. That's great. Great. Eitan, you've spent decades working in Africa. What is the most important lesson you've learned about eradicating poverty, and how did you learn that lesson? Thanks, Devin. Uh, what, we found, what we found is that the most important uh, issue is sharing 
in order to reach scale is working with government. So we established the, the concept of affordable housing or agro-development or water uh, projects. And we try to cooperate with the government so that the interests are aligned. That's the only way we can reach uh, scale. I'll give you an example. For affordable housing, um, we are willing to invest in the housing itself and offering a, a lower cost to the public. But the, the condition we ask for the government from the government is to provide the, the, all the facilities, the water, energy, the schools, hospitals, and all other social elements of a community. Excellent. Now, John, you, Rotary's collaborated for 30 years with UNICEF, the CDC, WHO, and with the Gates Foundation for more than a decade, what lessons have you learned from those collaborations? Well, and Devin, thank you for uh, for having us uh, having Rotary on your on, on this program. I think the the big the big lesson uh, that we learned from the polio eradication effort is the power of partnership. Um, the polio eradication effort probably represents the most successful public-private partnership. Uh, uh, ever in the, in the area of, of global health. And it was really through the partnering of the private sector, civil society, and, uh, and government that we were really able to, over 30 years, uh, be on the brink of eradicating, eradicating polio. And I think this whole concept of partnership is really critical. Whether you're talking at the micro level, social entrepreneurs, or whether you're talking about a big global initiative like the eradication of polio, uh, those that are successful rely on, on partnership. Um, it's very interesting. I was in, uh, in Colombia last year uh, on a panel um, uh, discussing the Sustainable Development Goals. And the, the Minister of Economic Development of Colombia uh, made a very interesting observation. He said the, the Colombian government sat down and looked at the 169 targets, uh, SDG targets for Colombia. And they came to the conclusion that only a handful of those targets would they be able to meet through government intervention alone. The vast majority required significant partnership between civil society and the private, the private sector. So at least in the case of Colombia, uh, the SDGs will not be achieved uh, unless we have significant partnership between civil society, government, and, uh, and, the, uh, and the private sector. That, that is really a, a, a powerful lesson. And, and I think it's hard to overemphasize, I think, the, the role of collaboration in, in this effort. Judith, um, how do your stoves benefit the people you sell them to, and, and do those benefits extend beyond the people who buy and use the stoves? Well, they benefit people in multiple different ways. First of all, most of the people that we're catering to don't have access to energy now and are cooking primarily on open fires or uh, charcoal or paraffin. That has a mix of consequences. One is it kills more than 4 million people a year. It's one of the largest uh, causes. Household air pollution is, I think, fourth biggest killer in the world. Um, environmentally, obviously, it's horrendous. But also, and I'm sure Laurent will understand this in uh, places like Haiti, there just is not enough fuel for everybody to continue in this way. Um, so the, the benefits are multiple for the end user themselves, but also their families. And that extends in ways such as uh, having a source of energy from, uh, you know, solar lighting, from being able to recharge your mobile phone, halving your energy expenses. It really reflects uh, most often on the, the children. Um, 
being able to study after dark, also for uh, women to continue being productive after dark and therefore really improving their economic situation, um, being able to continue studies, the, the financial savings are not only the most appealing to most of our customers, but I think also have the biggest potential for change. Uh, and that linked with being able to charge a mobile phone at home, uh, which means that you're now able to have a smartphone, which means you'll now have access to other goods and services that, that haven't been available to these kinds of customers to date. And I think that's where we see the most potential uh, for impact is actually by... Um, catalyzing this potential by having access to the most you know desperately needed energy uh seeing where that ripple effects takes the customers actually where where they take it themselves what they then invest in and and that's what we're tracking and that's what interests us the most now katie we've already had some fair discussion about public private partnerships but that's essentially what you're in the throes of creating there in Liberia with more than me. Uh, tell us, give us your take on, on that government collaboration with private entities. Yeah, I think it's interesting to hear how in health, um, you know, from the Rotary, how, it, you know, in eradicating poverty, it's seen as such a positive thing. I, it's been interesting. It's been come, um, there's been a lot of debates, a lot of emotion around what's happening in the education system and sector in Liberia. Um, so what we, we've done is that More Than Me Academy is a, was at my first school, um, and the school became a top-performing school in the country. Um, we have safety, health, and quality education, and we're monitoring that. Um, the Ministry of Education asked us to put that model inside the public school um, system, so we, we've done that, but other there's been other partners invited as well, such as BRAC. One of the largest is Bridge International Academies, which is a for-profit company, so More Than Me is a nonprofit, but we have, out of eight partners now running 200 schools, three of them are for-profit um, companies that are, are being asked to, 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 run, to run schools. Uh, essentially, we're all, getting, we're all getting the same thing. We're all getting, uh, the teachers are paid in the schools, um, and then we're getting paid $50 per child, which is around $12,000 per school. I'm from New Jersey where the government provides around $17,000 per child per year per school. So it's, you know, we're all get, we're getting around $12,000 to run a school for a year plus teacher salaries. Um, and then the, and the government monitors our results. And in, it's been one year this past year, and the, we are, um, the government's scaling their program to year two. Uh, but I've been a part of helping get that whole thing started. Um, and definitely after spending 12 years in Liberia, at least 50% of my time, I, I haven't seen something that's been more effective for, for children and, and their ability to learn. It's early as far as results are concerned, um, but we've seen huge gains. Um, and, you know, families and communities are so excited about what's going on. And it's, it's unbelievable what can happen. And I, I, I second whatever, Aton and, um, you know, Laurent, I, everybody's saying is this public-private partnership. I had no idea that this is, that it could have such huge uh, impact for so many children. So we're very excited to be a part of it. Well, it, it is a great, uh, great, great application. It's a theme that I had not expected to come up so consistently in our discussion today, and, uh, and certainly a key takeaway for me already. Uh, Mark, you've experienced homelessness. Uh, you've interviewed hundreds, uh, maybe thousands of homeless people. Uh, there's probably no one 
that understands homelessness better than you. You've indicated that you uh, fear a perfect storm of automation coming that will leave millions of people worse off than they are today. How do you propose that we address that now before people end up on the streets? Well, first, I just want to thank you for having me. And I got to apologize for two things in advance. I have huge passion in this area. So get ready. And second, um, my focus is homelessness in the United States. Now, as a TV producer, I've been to Sudan. I've helped raise millions of dollars. I do some international work. But what I'm talking about is really the United States. And there is a perfect storm coming, and it's not just automation. We also have a, a serious issue with affordable housing. So yesterday there was a report in Los Angeles that when rents increase 5% next year, and they're projected to do that, another 2,000 people will be out on the streets. Los Angeles already has a 23% increase of homelessness from the year before. So um, it's a very serious crisis. Now there's more truckers than any other profession in the United States, I would assume most areas. And in five years, trucks are gonna drive themselves. And in my profession, which is marketing, they say only the poor person that has to go to the meetings will not be automated. I mean, Associated Press is now using computers to write stories, whether it be minimum wage or high-end jobs, we are going to see massive job loss in five to 10 years. I, 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 I have clients that have social enterprise. I, I love that, but I think we need to address it really at the core roots. And again, I'm talking United States, it's completely different in Africa and some parts of the world. Um, I, otherwise, we are going to see a very serious problem. And what I'm talking about is things like a universal living wage. I mean, in the United States right now, everybody's talking about bringing up a minimum wage to $15. That's, you're going to see almost a 40 45% job loss, according to the Obama administration did a report on, on automation. Minimum wage of $15 an hour and uh, housing increase is not going to help a whole lot. Uh, the topic that's been very common here has been collaboration. That's key, important, and brought up something uh, that, you know, when the refugees came into Germany, that they weren't ready for it, and it was the general public that rose up. I believe the faith-based organizations of all different faiths are going to play a big role in addressing the poverty that's going to hit the United States and probably the world much more than our. The other thing that I think of, and I'm going to do a little chair here uh, to, to help point, I call it the coffee kiosk. So I don't know um, how many of you have been to like a startup like YouTube or Uber or Box or uh, Airbnb. Uh, on the left is a coffee kiosk at YouTube. There's one every 150 feet, okay? <laughs> yeah, there's free Red Bull, there's free cereal, free bananas, free oranges, free coffee, and they're throughout. I mean, there's all kinds of other perks. These are just coffee kiosks. On the right, I was chief marketing officer for a $23 million nonprofit out here in upstate New York. This is our coffee kiosk. It's self-funded. 
It's not that we don't care for our employees any less. There's just no money. There's so many restrictions on funding that comes into the NGO sector from either foundations and foundations don't like to fund anything new because new things don't fit into old bucket. And, and to address my point, let's use Twitter as an example. Twitter changed how the world communicates. It changed how the world communicates. I'm going to go stop my screen share. It, Twitter changed how the world communicates and it's a pretty whacked idea, 140 characters, but somebody went and invested in it. Somebody said, okay, here's a couple million dollars, go change the world, and, and they had autonomy to be able to do that. We're here in the nonprofit sector, at least very much so in the States, and I'm sure other NGOs around the world suffer from this. The funding is all about programs or different things, and there's not even really autonomy to be able to go after and do what you do best. Most executive directors and, and CEOs are just trying to get funding and often will go after funding that might not even be what the NGO does the best. We need to be able to fix how the nonprofit, the NGO structure is funded so there is collaboration because the way it is now, we all say, oh, we love each other, we're gonna get together, but then we fight for the same grants behind the scenes. You know, I mean, come no. on, let's be real. So we need to be able to fix the nonprofit structure, one, but more importantly, we need to address poverty, homelessness, which is a wage and a place to stay and healthcare at, at the root causes, or we're going to see, and I'm a positive person, or we're going to see really a perfect storm yeah. uh, Oh my gosh, it's going to be horrible. So, well, Mark, thank you for that take. Uh, I just wanted to jump in, if I may, just really quickly on a comment, um, just because I, I, I totally agree um, that, you know, there's going to be these, these funding streams are going to dry up or be redirected or, you know, there will be too many nonprofits or NGOs that are competing for the same sources of funding. But I think to some extent, one of the kind of restructure elements needs to be looking at different revenue streams and making sure even if it is a nonprofit, that it's viable as a nonprofit, as a business, and, 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 and kind of involving the people that benefit from this nonprofit in a way that you know, goes both ways so that they're able to indicate what it is that they need in, in, what, in which way, but perhaps also support to whatever degree they're able to the kind of funding or helping to fund these organizations and getting more involved, raising awareness for the kinds of organizations that they benefit from or need benefit from. Um, because I think it, it is all supply and demand. And I think often, you know, millions of people rely on, on specific organizations that then get defunded because they don't have the voice or they don't speak up about needing it or, or the financial power to make a difference. Whereas that's, that's how we need to start thinking about, you know, alleviating all these massive problems is actually giving people a voice, involving them in how the business is structured, making sure that we have alternate revenue streams. So we're not relying on, you know, one person who signs the document to, to agree whether or not it should be funded, because it tends not to be the one that benefits or really needs the services or goods that are being provided. Well, Judith, that's let, let, me, I, let me do, Devin, let me just, because there was a key point that I, ha I forgot to make, and Judith reminded me, thank you. So in the homeless services sector, the most innovative idea in several hundred years is housing ends homelessness. That's yeah. it. 
housing ends homelessness. And the reason is the, the, the funding doesn't allow for innovation. And we need to be able, we, we in it's the social enterprise sector or whatever, um, and it's really, uh, Judith made some great points. What I'm seeing in the homeless services sector is, and I like to say it like this, maybe I'm a farmer and I, I, grow, I grow apples. I'm really good at it. But all of, the, all of the money is over in oranges. I'm not so good at oranges, but I'm going to start growing oranges even though I can't do it really well because I've got staff to pay and I've got an electric bill and everything else. So you have all these people just going after the money instead of really addressing fighting poverty and homelessness. That's a great point. Now, Morgan, uh, you know, some of what uh, Mark and Judith commented on is really kind of right up your alley. Uh, one of the central tenets of your work is the idea of distributing ownership of the means of production to workers and their communities. What is your favorite example of seeing that at work? Um, I'm thinking about in the context of impact investment, because that's my field. I've been an impact investor for about 17 years. And I think a lot about what is the type of infrastructure that we need to be able to enhance ownership in society. So not just about kind of seeking the one perfect project or enterprise, but how do we kind of create the environment for a thousand flowers to bloom, right? And a lot of that is about access to capital for marginalized communities that often are not going to be able to access what, what investors might call the friends and family uh, community, which, which may not uh, have the type of resources that would be necessary. Um, so one of the projects I'm a big fan of is the Working World, um, which provides finance for worker-owned cooperatives. Um, and they do so through a non-extractive model. And Brendan Martin, the founder, I'd really credit uh, to being the author of the term uh, non-extractive finance, and specifically um, ensuring that any loans that are paid back are through the profits that um, that loan created. Um, so really making sure that finance is an input that's adding value to a system as opposed to um, essentially extracting value back out from communities. Um, so they've funded, they've done over a thousand loans with 99% repayment, um, started off in Argentina and then went uh, bounced back up uh, to Nicaragua and then the United States. So they've been operating out of New York uh, for the last three years. Um, so I think those are the types of projects I could certainly talk about some of the underlying co-ops that supported, um, but really thinking about if from an investor's perspective, how do we create the infrastructure that's needed to encourage broader ownership? Eitan, hey, I wonder if you would be willing to comment a little bit on uh, Morgan's observations. Because you come from a, a little different school of thought about impact investing. Eitan, hey, did we lose you? Eitan warned us he might have to sneak off early. Uh, Renata, maybe you could just comment on that for Eitan. Sure. Can you ask the question again, please? So Morgan was talking about uh, the importance of impact investment uh, empowering local communities and uh, sharing ownership with the local communities. And I just wondered if you'd react to that. Sure. So what we see in Africa, it's, it's more than ownership. So the deficit of housing units, for example, in Angola, where we have one portfolio company in the housing sector, is, is estimated to be more than two or three million units. 
So one of the key needs is also providing the actual need, the actual essential housing units and providing it in affordable prices in, in good quality and in a setting that will enhance the uh, community, the urban community uh, well-being in terms of not only providing the house, but also provide, providing all the necessities such as schools, uh, recreation area, area for the community to actually grow uh, and, and be um, vital and viable for the long term. So this is a key issue for us, not only providing the, the ownership uh, issue, which is, which is a key issue, I agree, but also providing the key product that is much needed. And I think this is a, a place where the sector, the private sector can really make a difference. Laurent, uh, you're an impact investor. You, you, you do a lot of this. Uh, how do you think about uh, these issues? Well, right now, you know, we're, we're focusing on, uh, on a couple of things. So right now we are experiencing something new because, you know, besides being the former prime minister, I have a foundation and we're working with, with uh, specifically with uh, the rural farmers and helping them get sustainable in Haiti, the remote villages. So we're working, you know, we started a pilot. And what we're doing is trying to, it's, you know, we're all about sustainability because we understand that, you know, our funding is very scarce um, and we're trying to do a lot with little. So what we've decided to do is to focus the, the, uh, the investment on on helping the farmers help themselves. So we, we buy them seeds and then we, we, we seek uh, buyers from them, um, you know, supermarkets, restaurants, hotels, um, to, to purchase from them, advertise. So we create a brand, if you went for them, and that brand now is sold at the best restaurants and, there's, and everybody's seeing as helping and contributing to, to their well-being. So, so we, we have a multi-partnership approach, whereas uh, right now we're focusing on giving them solar lighting for their homes for their children to, to have, you know, light at night and for them to be able to charge their cell phones, to have access to markets, to have access to communication because the, 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 the villages are very remote. And we're doing the same thing for, for a fishing village um, that was affected by, the, uh, by Hurricane Matthew and that destroyed the village completely. So, so we're working with the foundation, you know, Carlos Slimford Foundation and Happy Hearts, uh, Sean Penn's uh, foundation in order to help rebuild, but at the same time, um, bring sustainability to, to, to their revenue. So right now we're helping them in the, with fishing lines, with boats, and we, we also connected them with the same you know, restaurants and hotels in, in Port-au-Prince to buy the fish from them and buy the conch and the lobster um, you know, from, from this particular fishing village. And the impact we've seen has been you know, incredible. So we've seen, for example, that those, you know, boat farmers and fishermen being able to send their kids to school, the, re the revenues have, have gone from about, you know, $1,000 U.S. per month for the whole village to right now it's, it's 10 times more. So, um, you know, so, so, so there are micro experiences, but that can have, you know, a huge impact, you, you know, if you take it based on a sustainability, um, you know, sustainability model, because otherwise, you know, it's like it's, it's a hard fight to win, you know. Uh, good point. Now, John, you, you've been looking at uh, some work that Rotary has been doing in Ecuador, and, and you point out that for uh, p 
people who are experiencing uh, poverty that that uh, understanding how to use capital is as important as having access to it. What's Rotary doing, and how's it working? Well, you know, Rotary we're very again very community based. We have uh, five thousand Rotary clubs in around the world, and they generally bring together uh, community leaders. So we have a very strong uh, network worldwide of, of people with deep roots in, in the community. And, and our goal has always been, uh, several people talked about, about sustainability. And uh, one of the things we, I think we've been very successful in doing is having our Rotarians in different areas, Ecuador is, is an example, uh, working with uh, local entrepreneurs, uh, work, work, working with uh, providing uh, putting together schemes to develop microfinance, uh, microfinance programs, and then mentoring, mentoring those people. So it's not just simply providing the loans, but it's helping them with the business plans. It's helping them develop structures so that they can become viable and sustainable uh, ongoing business going, uh, going forward. In the United States, for example, we've got a very interesting program that started in Detroit called Launch Detroit, where local Rotarians have banded together with uh, local uh, financial institutions, with governments, uh, to provide a structure to train uh, to train up uh, 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 small entrepreneurs. And that model is now being replicated in many many cities around the world by uh, by Rotarians. But I think the big, the, uh, if you sort of jumping to a slightly higher level, Devin, I think the big question here is is how do we uh, channel the private sector, because that's where really the, the money is, is in the private sector. Uh, and the long-term sustainable solution is vibrant economic systems and economies that work, provide people with jobs, provide people with income, with the ability to, to, take, care of, to take care of themselves. And the, the real big question here, the real holy grail, is that how do you inculcate into core business, mo- into business models uh, the idea of social good? So social good becomes part of the core business model of a corporation, for example, as opposed to just sort of corporate social responsibility, which we're doing, uh, which we're doing today. You know, cut a $10 million check to some NGOs, we've done our social good. How do you inculcate social good into core business models where share price is reflected by your social, your social impact and station is also in part uh, a factor of, of social impact. Uh, and that's not easy, but that's the, holy, that's the holy grail. And you've got things like the UN Global Compact, uh, Paul Pullman over at Unilever, Alex Faber at UBS, uh, some sort of heavy-hitting uh, corporations now that are beginning to think very seriously about how do we work to change core business models uh, where social good becomes not just something we do on the side, but part of our, of our everyday, everyday business. Well, that's a great, uh, a powerful observation uh, about the role of business in, in eradicating poverty. And I appreciate you uh, sharing that point. I would love to comment on that, if I may. Please. Um, because I, I totally agree. I think it needs to be a bigger part of business that, that the, the impact that a company can have is you know, involved in decision making. And I think to that extent, we need to look at the way that impact is financed as well and looking at more uh, things like results-based financing on monetizing externalities, making sure that the kind of impacts that we want to see are worth money from the people that are spending money on it now, but maybe not as successfully, not really achieving the kind of goals and kind of looking at the companies that are able to achieve those goals and and monetizing it in a way because at the end of the day, actually everything has to be sort of circular. It has to work for everybody that's involved. Um, And, and, you know, in the same way, I I do believe that the, the business models of, you know, nonprofits and of for-profits and everything should actually become 
more similar, more like each other and, and look at, um, you know, how can every person who participates within that business model actually receive the, the the slice of the pie that they need to, you know, the customer has to get everything that they want out of it, including all the services, the, um, the investors need to see, you know, some return, but perhaps it all needs to be a little bit more balanced. And, and that's what we need to look at incentivizing. I would like to say something, Devin, as well. Sure, Arlene, go ahead. Um, we're working, the, we're a beneficiary of a for-profit company. It's actually in Melbourne, Australia. Uh, young social entrepreneurs that started a company to sell water, bottled water with the sole purpose of the profits from the company going to digging wells in Africa. And then they did a a food line like power bars and, and lotions and stuff for health and hygiene. And now they're doing a baby line and one heart is the recipient of the profits from their company. But the whole company was set up right from the beginning that all profits from the, from their sales go to, to charity. And then they set it up that, so when you buy the product, it has a code bar and you can actually see where your money is going to be invested. And I, I just think, you know, there's no reason why, I mean, that would solve poverty in our country. Think about Amazon. <laughs> the amount of money that would come from just Amazon alone to eradicate, you know, poverty in our country. And it's just not, we're not set up that way. We're set up, you know, we need to buy more, you know, five or six homes or more, more, more instead of, of really addressing the issues at hand that we can solve. And yeah. I know Mark has addressed this. We can solve poverty and housing problems. And um, this is one way. And my second question was, for those of you that work on poverty alleviation, is it across the board that usually investing in women and microloans are the best value, more likely to pay back the loans, more likely to use that money for health and education for their children, or is there is it cultural or more cultural Pacific? Like, is that different in Haiti than in Africa than the U.S.? Jim, do you want to do you want to tackle that? Yeah, it's it's really interesting that. So, so often we ignore the women uh, and the role they play in society. It's, it's, there's no question about that. And, and what, I, what I'd like to suggest here is that we have to begin to think about how to integrate the activities of the social sector, the private sector, and the public sector. Too often it's, it's like a series of separate activities going on in these communities, and they're not talking to each other, and they generally ignore each other. And when, the, when these sectors are working together and involving women in, the, in for example, in an enterprise activity, uh, we've got a program in, in Nepal called Collective Collateral. And this Collective Collateral program essentially says too many NGOs go in and do credit programs and then they leave and the program dies when the, when the outsiders leave. What we've tried to do is to help individual communities start their own cooperatives, begin to encourage savings among the community members, women in particular, and these funds then go into a bank account. And banks, of course, are not willing, generally, to give loans to people that have no collateral. And so what we've essentially said in, in these communities is 
you villagers together create a system of collective collateral, which says that an individual family can develop their own business model, start a goating, a goat farm, or start a, a fish pond, or whatever their enterprise is, and the community guarantees that loan to a local bank. When that happens, then the banks begin to realize that those in extreme poverty actually can't pay their loans back. And that seems to me to be the key to sustainability. When there's banks providing resources for, for, for men and women in communities, not relied on some outside NGO that will, that will be there or won't be there, but a local community bank, uh, that seems to me to be one of the keys to sustainability. I, I, I mean, can, can, can I add something Please. to it? Please, Lauren, go ahead. Yeah, this is, I mean, this is the, the key to it all because one of the biggest, you know, factor into keeping people in, in extreme poverty is, is, is the sustainability. So, so they, for example, we had a very large conditional cash transfer program that we put together with 122,000 moms that were living in extreme poverty. So we did the, the if you want the screening, okay, to, to get the, the poorest of the poor uh, with the World Bank. And, um, and, and we got 122,000 of them, which we give uh, conditional cash transfer every month of about 20, 20 to $25. We, and the condition was that they have uh, a record from the schools that they would send their children to school. So, that, that, so that's the condition um, for them. And, and what happened is it worked, I would say, it worked at 80% because the, what happened is that they grouped together in those cooperatives, okay, that James is talking about, and they, 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 they had, for example, peanut butter um, shops that they were producing and selling to the community. Now, what happened is what happened in conditional cash transfer programs, there was a change of, of political leadership and then that program got dropped. And then now, now the, the women that had graduated and out of poverty now didn't have these, these means and, and the business didn't really have the way to get the collateral from the banks. So I, did, so, so I didn't do the last, the last mile, if you want, which is what you're talking about, having the community being able to guarantee the micro loans, you know, to the local bank, and that part was not done, and and, and that that part probably is the, the most important one. As you're helping, you know, you need to keep that keep it keep it sustainable that way. I don't know if you have maybe a you know a, a, a concept paper or something about that that um, that I could uh, I could propose it to the new government that's there so that they, they close that loop because that part they don't have it. Okay, thank you. May I um, add something? Yeah, please. So I, I would really like to support the concept of no trade-off between financial and, and social goals and returns. And I, th I, I think we, we see more and more evidence that this is actually possible. And there are different business models that we can, um, uh, we can implement in order to gain these results and have no trade-off. For example, in, in Vital Capital Portfolio has some portfolio companies that using an outward scheme so one of the key, uh, or one of the most important uh, poverty alleviation strategies, obviously, to increase the income of, of people and using uh, um, uh, individuals as a suppliers can really, really increase their income. So for we track this indicator, and Vital Patrol Company made over 
47 million dollar in payments to local farmers' family, and this results in raising a, a farmer's income from way below minimum wage to over sometimes $2,000 per month. So we can see actual results in, in implementing these uh, uh, integrative uh, models of both financial and impact goals. Yeah. Well, you know, I guess... I'm, Go ahead, Ron. Yeah, I'm sorry. I guess, you know, in, in, in what we're talking about, yes, definitely. But, you know, what I was talking about before was mostly from a governmental point of view because you have two approaches. You have the approach of the grants, the, the unconditional cash transfer. And what happens is with the unconditional cash transfer, it's, it's hard, you know, basically we get, we, you know, us in the government, we get criticized for giving a handout and getting and, and not having anything in, in return. Whereas the conditional, what it did is it, it actually increased the, the, the children's attendance in, in schools from 55 to 90%. So that was, you know, that was a win, you know, for, for us to be able to increase the, the, the school attendance while helping the moms, you know, provide for their children after, after school. So, so it's a little bit, you know, the, the, the philosophy, I guess, from a government point of view, it's a little bit different than, um, of course, what we're talking about now, you, you, you're perfectly right. Yeah. Now, Alicia, I want to reach out to you. We've had some interesting discussions about women and their, and their role in this. Most of the people that work for all across Africa are women, and uh, you're seeing some pretty um, pretty dramatic impact uh, on the women. I wonder if you just take a minute and describe how you work with them and the impact it's having on the women. Yeah. So. Um, we're directly working with the women to employ them through their local craft and tradition. Their craft and tradition of weaving um, just so happens to be kind of a culturally um, when-and-done product. Um, but it is interesting. Um, we are seeing um, men start to break out of that cultural norm and even have been speaking and doing um, some research with them lately saying that um, they're actually proud to be weaving and providing for their families and break out of that cultural norm. It's still only like 0.05% of our program participants, um, but we are starting to see men join. Um, as far as what the women are doing, um, for sure, sending their kids to school, saving for their future, building new homes, um, taking out loans to build new storefronts. Um, I've been to many women's homes where they're actually um, employing their husbands. They've created, um, you know, sewing centers where the husband can work. Um, they're buying property and plots for them um, to farm. So, yeah, definitely seeing a widespread impact where they're investing, um, you know, for the men as well to have business opportunities that might not be involved in weaving. I wanted to comment, too. I think that... And there has been a notion for a long time that um, where men have been blamed and have been left out of solving the issues. And what we've done with in one heart is to bring them back in to, to solving the issues with their women getting access to care. And with the approach of, you know, we all have a mother and your wife is the mother of your child. And if she dies, you know, it's a, a big economic loss, but it also leaves a child without their mother. And so when men think of it in that way, we have found them to become much more engaged in, in being a part of the solution instead of being um, a part of the problem. So I'm glad to hear that 
that's happening in other places as well. Uh, and I want to shift gears just a little bit uh, and uh, talk to you, uh, ask you to comment a little bit about uh, the value of education. You, you've been, you set up the Ready School of Digital Integration to help refugees get uh, employable skills, I, I think would be how you might describe it. Uh, how's that working and why do you think that's so important? Um, so what we do at Ready School is that we're helping fill the unemployment gap that there is in the German IT sector at the moment. Um, there's 51,000 available jobs, um, which means that the German business world is, is actually suffering um, because they can't get access to the talent. And this we really saw as an opportunity to create a win-win-win situation whereby the German industry is um, earning more money, the refugees are getting jobs and German society overall is um, winning because the refugees are getting um, access to the job market much, much faster than, than normal. But we're a little bit different than a traditional school because um, all our teachers are volunteers. That means that they are actual professionals working in the IT sector, whether it be in startups or large tech companies like Cisco, SAP and Facebook, who are some of our partners. Um, and, and those companies um, are sending their um, staff to come and teach at Ready School um, once or twice per week for a couple of hours. And this has a great benefit that our students, of course, are learning the theory that is necessary, but they're also learning the soft skills and they're getting access to the network that can really help them get a job. Because I think just teaching hard skills is not going to be enough. We can see in Germany... Part of the problem is that the refugees end up in what we like to call the refugee bubble, meaning that they are getting access to German education, but our students are only learning German with other refugees, or they live in refugee camps, so all their friends become refugees, and really breaking out of that system and getting German friends who are in professional jobs who can open the door and make an introduction for you to, to the Amazons or the SAPs of the world is really, really necessary. So I think we, we need to rethink what education is, that it's not necessarily nine to three every day. Um, we need to rethink the role of the teachers um, and have a much broader idea of lifelong learning, especially in the IT sector. Um, it's it's an industry that is moving so fast that, that you really need to keep up with your skills all the time. And, and this is part of what we're trying to teach our students is their approach to learning needs to be something that is an ongoing process. Uh, Devrin, can I make a point about sure. schools just for a minute? Uh, we've, always, we've always believed that if you build schools, the children will come. But we've found in, in many countries where I've been working that if, if both parents are literate, 90% of their children are going to the schools. If, if one's literate and the other parent's not literate, it's about a 50-50 chance. But if both parents are illiterate, uh, only maybe 15-20% of their children are going to school. So we've been making a very strong effort to say, okay, you need schools, you need teachers, but what about the role of the parent? And by increasing adult literacy programs in the villages where we've been working, we have increased that bottom 20-30% of the extreme poor children who don't go to school because they're out begging and there's no impact from the parents, as you train and provide adult literacy programming for the parents, the children automatically begin to go to the schools. That's powerful. That's powerful. John, you mentioned 
John, in your, your comments to me in advance that, that one of the issues with extreme poverty and homelessness is to remove the, the foundational barriers like uh, illiteracy, a lack of educational achievement, uh, uh, gender inequality, uh, security, access to water. What is Rotary doing to address those fundamental foundational barriers to success? Well, again, as I mentioned, we have you know an incredible network of 35,000 clubs around the world, 1.2 million Rotarians, uh, in, in many in many places, you know, community leaders, and so we're um, through our foundation, and we uh, we, we our foundation raises about 300 million dollars uh, a year. Uh, we provide grants to uh, to Rotary clubs around the world, six areas: uh, maternal child health, disease prevention, treatment, uh, peace and conflict resolution, uh, water and sanitation, uh, microfinance. And literacy, and um, and I think through these through the grants that we provide to our clubs and the projects that they're doing, uh, in these six areas, I think we're doing a very important job in terms of addressing some of these key some of these key issues that you uh, that you highlighted. Devin. In fact, I Anne, who was just speaking earlier, is a uh, is Rotary Peace uh, Rotary Peace Fellow, is a recipient of one of our one of our grants to do a uh, postgraduate studies in. Uh, in peace and conflict, uh, in peace and conflict resolution. So we're trying to take a very holistic view in terms of addressing these various different uh, uh, interventions that that lead to, uh, to alleviation of some of the issues we've been discussing. But again, if I could just get back to the point I made earlier, Devin, I think for me, the big question here is, is how do we unleash the power of the private sector? Uh, to deal with many of the issues we've been talking about, about, about today. I think Mark mentioned, you know, NGOs have trouble getting funding. By definition, that's not a stable model because they're constantly depending on the next, the next grant, the next, uh, the next, uh, the next uh, payment from uh, from a donor. Uh, what is sustainable is is sustainable private sector growth, strong economies uh, where people have jobs, people have the ability to take care of themselves, where we're increasing we're increasing incomes. It's all about increasing incomes, and so uh, very often the NGO community, the private sector is viewed as the enemy. Uh, in my view, the private sector is the solution, not the enemy. Uh, but again, as I mentioned earlier, these problems all need to be addressed in a, in a cohesive fashion with the private sector, civil society, and government working working hand uh, hand in glove. I I agree, and actually, just a, a note on that. Um, I agree that there needs to be work opportunities, creating local economies, stimulating local economies. Uh, one of the things that we've seen is that um, often the reason that, for example, women aren't able to uh, generate income or uh, get jobs is because they spend so much of their time doing things like gathering fuel and getting water and, and, and these kinds of wasted uh, hours and fun um, uh, income, because it's often also very expensive to be poor, uh, they're the things that we're kind of looking at trying to alleviate so that it then can catalyze more economic opportunities. So I think, again, working hand in hand at looking at the root cause of problems, then also having something to sort of catch people once they do have an education or more time. And, and often that's also then not considered. And, and that's where I see the potential for collaboration, you know, look at solving the problem, but then also, okay, so now someone has a business certificate and they're ready and they have more time and they have a bit more uh, money, but then there are no jobs available. And th these are the things that we need to look at uh, holistically and kind of, yeah, what, what happens when it's, a slightly improved situation, well, then we need to keep that impact going, keep that momentum going in order for it to be sustainable and long-term. And, and, yeah, that's, I think, how, how we need to collaborate more as well, including with, with large corporate private sector creating jobs. 
Great point. Can I weigh in on that? Anne, yeah, go ahead, Anne. So, so one of the things that I would love to see change when it comes to refugees is that we can see, for instance, in Jordan, the Syrian refugees, and it's between 1.2 and 1.5 million people, um, they are desperately needing jobs. And, and I was just in Satsuri a couple of weeks ago and, and talking to the, to the people in Satsuri camp. The one thing that they say is that they have enough um, certificate to plaster their walls with, but they don't have any jobs. But on the contrary, they're also not allowed to create their own jobs. So entrepreneurship is not something that Jordanian government is actually allowing. And I think this is where I would love to see a big change, because if refugees was actually seen as an asset and as an opportunity for the Jordanian people to make money and to have more cash flow into the country by having these entrepreneurs coming from outside, I think everyone would stand to benefit from it. But government regulation limiting entrepreneurship is definitely not helpful. That's a great point. I, I wonder, Katie, I want to go back to this question of education. Uh, you work with people, and you've been there in Liberia working for a long time. Uh, now, I remind me how long, but I think it's on the order of eight or ten years. And so you've seen some of the girls you helped earliest now grow and mature and move on. Uh, what sorts of outcomes are you seeing, and what are the gaps that are left to fill after they're educated? Yeah. Yeah, I moved there 12 years ago. I started my organization in 2009, and my oldest student is only in 11th grade, so we're not quite there yet. Um, but that was at our like our first girls' school. I'm, you know, those we have a guidance counselor that has a plan for each of those girls, and you're able to do that for 200, 250, you know, probably up to a few hundred students. But once now, now we have 5,000 students. So obviously that will get more complicated. And our goal is to reach up to 20% of the students in the country. Uh, but one of the comments that I wanted to make was, you know, I have never, you know, the, you were talking about the value of education. And in Liberia, when Ebola hit, it was, it was, it was very clear. It was like a magnifying glass for everything that we're talking about here. Um, you know, in many international organizations, left. Many obviously stepped up as well. But the people who were fighting on the front lines that were, you know, that were tr saving lives were the local people, but they didn't have access to the resources that they needed. Oftentimes, um, Liberia, there's a saying, if you want to hide something from a Liberian, you put it in writing. There's a big issue with literacy and comprehension and critical thinking skills. And I saw this firsthand. Um, and I realized that, you know, even Liberians that have a U.S. passport were leaving um, anybody who could leave left. Many people stayed in, in indoors in meetings, um, and the people fighting the hardest were the people that obviously were most at risk, and they were fighting for their own children. And that is what led to the fact that, like, after watching so many people die, I mean, we've also were a part of saving many lives. Um, you know, our team was changed, and we realized that, you know, because we started off as one school, we realized that our girls at our school will never be able to thrive. Even if they have, if this is the Harvard of all schools in the world here in Liberia, they can't thrive if they live in a society that's vulnerable. Um, and the root to that vulnerability is education. Um, obviously, it's all of these things connected together. You do need jobs, but you need roads to, for companies to want to come. You need stability. But, um, but education, in, if you don't have basic education, which in Liberia, it's not like the refugees in, that, you, you know, and it's, it's not the situation where there, there are actual, it's not like India, there are jobs available in Liberia. So I couldn't be more excited and proud 
um, which is weird to say. I think people can be really critical of me when I say I'm proud of the Liberian government, but they've taken some really bold steps um, in, in thinking, you know, very entrepreneurially about, if that's even a word, about how to solve these issues. And the private sector, both companies, philanthropic dollars, um, NGOs, we've partnered all together, and I've never seen anything like this in it. Um, and I'm really excited for the results. Of course, it's not perfect. We need roads now. But companies are going to want to come to Liberia, and more jobs will be available if you have more. You know, right now, everybody's importing their workers from the Philippines or from the United States or from other West African countries, and it gets very expensive. But if, the, if, if managerial skills were available, um, and there's plenty of, of research and surveys that support this, um, it makes it easier, obviously, for companies. And there are companies there, but they have to bring everybody in, like I said. But I, I believe the private sector will only grow, um, you know, as the country stabilizes and, and there's more basic education for everyone. Mark, I want to shift gears and ask you to ground us a little bit in our discussion. And I, I, I hate to put you on the spot, but you have a perspective none of the rest of us have. Uh, you spent some time uh, on the streets, and I wonder if you would just tell us what you learned as a homeless person that the rest of us just don't get. Well, so I'm I, I, I I'm going to change that a little bit. I've been kind of waiting, and 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 John's right, John from Rotary, about the private sector. But how you get the private sector? is you control, I mean, you can change the world tomorrow by what you buy today. Uh, the, the private sector is all motivated by profits. Right now, the stock market in the United States is seeing more profits than anything. That's not going to translate to jobs. They get more money, they like more money. So you have to put it in a way that is going to motivate them. And the only way to motivate them, the power is in the consumer. So cause marketing has gotten really big. There's a lot of businesses that realize that if they add a cause, they can increase their price point. Now, that's cause marketing. Now, cause marketing I don't think is bad, but good cause marketing puts the cause alongside of profits and doesn't just do it for profits. Uh, the last time I knew only about 5%, it's probably that's an old stat from three or four years ago, maybe it's 10% now of companies actually give back in the United States. Uh, I would assume that's probably global. Could you imagine if more did? The other issue is then, you know, look at Bill Gates and Warren Buffett have this giving pledge, which is wonderful. Oh my gosh, it's wonderful. But then each millionaire and each billionaire picks whatever little cause they feel close to their heart. And it might not actually be what's really going to end poverty and homelessness, but it's their passion. All great, but then again, you don't get funding allocated to where it might have the most impact. Right? Nobody can argue that Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation has had tremendous, tremendous, tremendous impact in um, ending poverty global. But I'll give you a great real example. So in my work, uh, Gates Foundation flew down to take me to breakfast. I've been there speaking, love them, amazing. But it's been mandated that they only fund homelessness in three counties outside Seattle. So they've told me, we love you. We just can never fund you because we, in our DNA, so that the funding doesn't go around. But more importantly, I really want to address something here because I think these conversations are important. 
but we're speaking to ourselves. So tying it back into uh, what John said and what I just said is how you change it is by getting the consumer to buy it. The people that are, Devin, what you're doing is amazing. It's great. But the people that are even going to watch five minutes into this are us. We're talking to ourselves. You know what I mean? The conversation, and, and again, I'm really more focused on the United States, but people here are really focused on personal benefit. I was recently in the UK and that's what's in it for me. Okay, you're talking about all these refugees and poor people around the world, but right now I can't find work. I'm worried about my kids' education. You know, they're concerned about them. And so how do we frame this conversation so it's inclusive and not exclusive? And I know that, and, and again, back to the homelessness, which is my lens, the homeless service sector shares all kinds of messaging. I saw one today from the UK about only one third of homeless people can access healthcare. And I'm thinking the general public doesn't care. They do not care about homeless people to begin with. So why do the heck do they care that they can't access healthcare? But we think that, we, you know, it's just human nature that we think that everybody's like us. So since we have big hearts, everybody has big hearts. And my, to really narrow down my point is really, we have to figure out a way that we can include the general public, the people that are going to make purchase decisions or make donations decisions or make even better policy decisions into this conversation instead of continuing to speak in an echo chamber. That education that we're talking about, educating people and refugees and women and kids and everything else, crazy important, but we're not gonna have the support to do that work unless we educate people outside of our sector. Uh, you you I, make a great point, Mark, and I hope that by sharing some of this story on Forbes that we'll be able to reach some of that audience of people who aren't focused on this full time. Sorry to interrupt. To elaborate uh, on that point a little bit, I think we also need to look at the beneficiaries, really the end user themselves, and whether or not this is a service they want and need. Uh, and, and I say this, I say service, but I mean, we, we sell goods to the end user. And one of the most important aspects of that as a social enterprise is that they hold us accountable. I mean, our main revenue stream is from the end user, the, the beneficiary themselves. And I mean, our product is around $100 in the markets that we sell them. Obviously, that's more than a lot of our target customers can afford in one go. And then it becomes our responsibility to make it affordable. Now, I don't mean cheap. I mean affordable. So we provide microfinance loans so that people are able to pay it off over time. And we actually see that with the product that we provide, it, it basically pays for itself because it saves the customer so much money. But at the end of the day, what that does is it provides them the choice to invest in something that they really do want and need rather than to be given something or to um, to sort of elect for something that, that might not be something they would invest a hundred bucks in. I mean, this is, they, they hold me accountable. If the customer doesn't like the product or they don't like the services, if we don't provide maintenance, you know, they, 
stop paying their contract and then we really have to like get ourselves into gear to make sure we we chase that up it, it affects our revenue streams and I actually think that that's really important and I think many of these organizations and companies that are they're dealing with the end user and the beneficiary they need a little bit of them kind of holding them in check so that it all works for the ones that we actually are trying to help uh, and and I think that is you know next level deeper again is really the actual beneficiary gets to decide what the good or service is and looks like. Uh, may I speak to, to a comment John made that I thought sure. important? Sure. Go ahead, Jim. Um, it's, it's interesting. I happen to be a former Rotarian myself, so I can speak openly about this. I have been very excited, John, about the, the way they have, you focused on polio eradication. That to me has been a a very successful program. Uh, may I suggest that the United Nations post-2015 development goal of eliminating, eradicating extreme poverty by the year 2030, that that could be the Rotarian um, mantra for the year 2020 to 2030. And I would love to see Rotarians get involved in that process of eradicating extreme poverty in the world. Um, and, and I say that primarily because I've come to the conclusion that only when we really focus on extreme poverty, uh, we talk about poverty in general, but the focus on extreme poverty to me is crucial because anyone who knows anything about the bottom of the pyramid recognizes that there's a tremendous financial opportunity here investing in the bottom of the pyramid. And if businessmen and the world could see the value of helping the extreme poor move up into that middle upper poor area, that to me is will be the key to the eradication of extreme poverty. John, do you want to just respond to that briefly? I, I, I want to give you an opportunity. Yeah, no, absolutely. I agree with the concept. And, uh, and I think through the six areas of focus that we operate in that I talked about earlier, I think we're addressing a lot of the issues that, that have been talked about. The, in terms of what Rotary's next global project is going to be after we eradicate polio, that's, uh, you know, 1.2 million Rotarians. You probably have 1.4 million points of view in terms of uh, what we should be doing. And again, our membership is very diverse <laughs> and involved in a host of issues uh, across the spectrum. And I think that's going to be an interesting uh, challenge for us as an organization to, to try to determine what the next global project will be if, in fact, we, we do have one. So, yeah. Thanks, John. I'm not sure I heard yeah. energy on your list, though, John. Make sure we uh, keep yeah. energy in mind as well. <laughs> Loren, uh, I wonder if I could uh, ask you to comment on something you told me in, in preparation for this discussion. You, you, you made the point that um, improving prospects for the poor improves prospects for everyone. How is that? Oh, you better unmute yourself so we can hear you. Well, you know, that's the, you know, that's the purpose of what we've been seeing is to change the paradigm, change the paradigm in the private sector, understanding that, you know, basically inequalities are bad generally across the board, whether it's in the United States or, or, or in those, you know, 20 poorest countries uh, in the world right now. So fighting, coming up with strategies, thinking, brainstorming, uh, doing this type of, of, uh, of, uh, of conversation, you know, having the conversation basically will bring awareness that we can only, we, we can only do it together. 
and it's only by sharing strategies, by discussing, by by understanding what works in some places, what doesn't work in others. Because, for example, today I learned about you know basically homelessness in the United States, and while I was dealing with homelessness in Haiti, with one point six million, fifty percent of the population of Port-au-Prince being homeless after the earthquake, for example, and having strategies to deal with that. So, so fighting, you know, fighting at, at I would say, improving the quality of lives of, 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 you know, the poor has worked because we've seen, we've seen a significant amount of, of people graduate outside of, out of extreme poverty, but we have work still to do. And we have, you know, just to continue pushing into, into using the right method into, into continuing to, to, you know, to working in, in, in that extreme issues. And, and understanding that right now, because of all the progress that, that, that happened in fighting poverty, right now, you know, you have, you know, about 10%, you know, about 10.7, you have about 700 million people still living in extreme poverty uh, around the world. So it's a doable, it's a winnable fight. And, uh, and, and only by continuing, you know, to, uh, to engage and engage governments, because right now, it's important to engage governments in that fight and for governments not to see, you know, basically uh, their own people as, look, the NGOs will take care of them, but they have their roles to play as well. And, and, and I think that uh, awareness in that sector, um, you know, we, we focus this discussion a lot on developed countries, okay? There, there was a few developing countries. But I think engaging, you know, governments in good governance in, 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 into including that in their agenda is, is key to winning that fight because right now you have you know you have 20 of the poorest countries in the world and as as we fight the fight we we, we see that um that the extreme poor are harder to get to they're in in, in remote areas rural areas there is sometimes no road sometimes you know they're cut off from the rest of their own country so so it's gonna take a lot of you know it's gonna take a lot you know to win to bring it to a zero percent, if that can happen, but you know, it's a, it's a good fight. Well, Lorenda, it's the perfect transition to my last question, which I'm going to ask of Arlene. Uh, Arlene, um, some people, maybe a lot of people, are skeptical about the eradic about our ability to really eradicate poverty and homelessness. Even, I think some of us on this call probably worry about whether or not we can do it. Um, especially on the relatively aggressive timelines of the SDGs. You say it can be done. Why do you think so? Because I, I really don't think that there's any problem that can't be solved. It's just putting our, our attention on it. So like we're from John from Rotary International, we're, we're, we've eradicated pretty much polio. We've I, Carter alone eradicated an eye disease, you know, so if we really bring it to the attention, I think, I mean, just in our, I mean, Haiti's a good example. I mean, so much aid money went there after the, the disaster, but it really didn't, there wasn't the focus as it could have been, I think, on, on homelessness. And we sometimes deal with the immediate disaster but not the chronic long-term illnesses and prevention of those things i mean san francisco we have a huge homeless population but there are models in our own country of how i think it was actually ohio that 
they have done an incredible job at getting people off the streets. And most of the people, at least here, are have mental health challenges. It's, I think, different in different populations. I mean, I wouldn't say that how you know the million people on the streets in Port-au-Prince all have mental health issues, but a lot in the U.S. certainly do that are homeless. And so I think if we had, let's say, the Bill Gates of the world and the Warren Buffetts and we had 10 of those people that are billionaires and they said, okay, state by state, we're going to tackle this. We're going to bring in the best people around the world to tackle it. It could be done. It's, it, we, we are not putting our attention on it to solve it. And I think that we need to include people like Mark that have been homeless or people here in our streets that are homeless or Port-au-Prince. What is the motivation to get out of that cycle of poverty? I mean, we don't go and ask that question. And, you know, one of the things that people ask me why One Heart is so successful is that we spend a lot of time to understand the cultural and spiritual beliefs of what the, you know, around childbirth. So what are the, the cultural and spiritual beliefs around some of the homeless people? Um, how, how do we motivate behavior change? And, you know, it can be done. I believe it can. And I think there's smart enough people that are economists or philanthropists, social entrepreneurs, that if we put that kind of a team together and focus on it, I am sure it could be done. We can go to the moon. Yeah. Arlene, thank you. And also technology, technology can play technology. a big role. Yeah. Yes, technology has the potential to help us, even though uh, I think Mark uh, is not crazy to talk about the challenges that technology represents. I think it will also be there to help us. I want to thank all of you for taking the time to be, participate in this discussion and just wrap up by saying that uh, you all give me hope that we really can do this. Each of you in your own very different particular ways inspires me. You inspire other people. You, you uh, give me reason to believe. Uh, that people of goodwill around the world can come together and solve our biggest problems, including perhaps first and foremost, uh, the, uh, the extreme poverty and homelessness we see making uh, so many people in our world miserable. So uh, thank you for uh, not only joining me today, but thank you for the great work that all of you are doing uh, and the difference you all make in the world. Thank you for listening. This podcast was recorded via Google Hangouts on Air and is available at youtube.com forward slash Subscribe to this podcast on Stitcher or iTunes by searching for Your Mark on the World. Every weekday, Devon hosts a CEO, celebrity, entrepreneur or other changemaker here on the Your Mark on the World show to inspire and prepare you to make your mark. Devin is a champion of social good, writing about, advocating for, and advising people who are doing good. He is a Forbes contributor who is a recognized thought leader in social entrepreneurship, impact investing, and crowdfunding. To book Devin as a speaker, visit devinthorpe.com. Learn more about Devin's work at yourmarkontheworld.com.